I'd like to take the time to uh, thank Alan and Tracy for the invitation to, to come and share some thoughts with you. And uh, I want to thank you all for your care and concern for me. Uh, we uh, had an unexpected trip to uh, Nashville yesterday. Uh, the appointment wasn't supposed to be, <clears throat> excuse me, till December. We received a letter late last week telling us that we had to be, uh, be at the uh, appointment yesterday. So everything went well, confirmed my suspicions. The meanness is still oozing out, but eventually when the Lord comes, it'll be, it'll be dealt with. Now, I did tell Al, and Al's a hard act to follow in speaking, so I did tell him before he left that I would have to aggravate him. The first time we met was one of Joey's conferences, and, uh, you know, Al and I are brothers from birth, and in case you have a hard time telling us apart, he has the cool accent, and I wear my hair a little longer. (laughs) And I was going to do the... uh, you know, the object lesson uh, that he did, but unfortunately I lost my marbles a long time ago, so I'm just going to have to stick with the outline. We're going to be discussing a, a, a topic that's actually quite simple. It's, uh, uh, it's really dealing with our path, our, our course in life. And uh, as we get started, it's going to seem to be a... a perhaps an unusual topic to to get involved in, especially in a kingdom conference, but we'll start out simply with a question. What is sin? Now, once I ask that question, a lot of you are already going to have opinions in your mind on what sin is, especially when we have to describe this to uh, a a young believer in Christ or someone that has not uh, been saved or redeemed, as we would say. However, what we have to come to realize is that our opinion on what sin is, is of no importance. Sounds a little bit like a shocker, doesn't it? Well, let me turn this around in another, another way of presenting it to you. If I was to ask you, or to ask a typical Christian, what it is that I needed to do to be saved, or what I had to do to be saved, how many different answers would you get? How many different opinions are there? And we can see that in the mainstream. We can see the same thing with regard when we tell someone what sin is. I'll give you a perfect example. Nearly, uh, nearly 20 years ago when I started at a minister's internship in Anchorage, Alaska, they had all kinds of materials that you had to start to read and to, to um, get an appreciation of for this specific denomination. One of the things that they had in their denominational literature was the fact that wearing jewelry for women was not, not, uh, not allowed. Now, the thing that uh, I like reading after history, an interesting part in that particular doctrine was what did you do in World War II in Vietnam where you had wives that were sending their husbands overseas uh, and they wanted to honor their commitment and honor their husband in their absence and they wore a wedding band. They wore disfellowship from his churches. What about makeup? And we have all kinds of arguments, and I understand the few verses that are being used. Even to the point in one issue where we were, when I was reassigned into a base in Missouri, and the idea of whether a woman wore a dress or pants was an issue of disfellowship. Let me tell you folks something. I have preached in soup kitchens where I would much rather those women be wearing a pair of pants than what they were wearing sitting in the sanctuary. I think what we really need to do, by the way, it's not the length of hair, it's not the attire, it's not the jewelry, it's not the makeup, it's not the whatever. That is not the root of sin. 
We have a tendency that we associate and focus only on the act or the action of sin. And by so doing, we so narrow the scope, we do not fully appreciate or understand what we're talking about in the subject of sin, or if you want to use the big word for it, our mythology. You'll have to uh, forgive me. I still have a little bit of a speech impediment, but you get the gist. You know, when you ask someone a question like how to be saved or what sin is, you get a lot of different answers. And this is going to sound a little cold and harsh, but sometimes we need to wake up out of the stupor that we're in, and that's about the only way that we can wake ourselves up. When I ask that question, I get various and sundry answers, and believe it or not, it's even among kingdom believers. The answers that sometimes that we get reveal or betray a lack of spiritual maturity and a lack of understanding of the Word of God. And sometimes it just reveals or betrays absolute foolishness. And for believers, those who are professing to be disciples and professing to follow the path, that should not be the case. Now, as I said earlier, when we... When we associate sin only with the action or the act, for example, murder, theft, adultery, idolatry, our focus is only on that particular action and it misses the broader scope of what's happened. Um, however, a good way to really look at sin is defined by an old, uh, as, as an old archery type thing. It's looking for the bullseye or your mark. And when we sin, we miss that mark. Now... When we look at it in that sense, it allows us to look at a broader view. It focuses not just on the action, but the bigger picture. The expectation of the conduct of the believer and the outcome or the result of that sin. And quite simply, um, we are called out of the world by our Father and by the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, our mark, our target, is to be like our Father in all things. Now, when we look at that we are and, and they understand the idea that we are to imitate and be like our father the visible example given to us of the father and the pattern of which we are to mold ourselves after is the lord jesus christ he is god in the flesh he is the one that came down to be our visible example now that being said in our present time not only in the world but also in the church we have become more readily um, are more ready to romanticize, rationalize, justify, accept, and even glorify sin. And it's, uh, oftentimes the explanations that are given is because of social or economic pressures, or even the fact that oftentimes it's our own personal dabblings in sin or desires that we do not want to separate ourselves from. This process of rationalization and explaining away began in the Garden of Eden with Eve. And we should all be familiar in Scripture of how we've had sin reintroduced into a perfect creation in Genesis chapter 3. We should also know that her temptation was like that of our Lord's when he started his ministry back in Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 11. Their temptations as well as ours come from 
three places, body, soul, and spirit. That's how they were tempted. That's how we're tempted. Now, there are many gates that lead into those three aspects of our creation, our constitution. And very simply, for our our point of study, you have the ear gate, the eye gate, the gate of the mouth, the gate of touch, and finally, the gate of smell. Some of you are probably waiting for water gate, but that's not it. Now, you say, well, these are all our senses. Absolutely, they are. These senses are attuned and they relay information to our mind. And they are also used to assist and even execute the thoughts and the intention of our mind. How often have we said something that our mind is thinking before we actually allow it to go through the buffer of actual thought? Or we look at things that we know we're not supposed to and we allow that to come back in and replay in our mind as an act of temptation. Now... Excuse me, I had to wet that vocal cord. As we begin dealing with this subject, you're going to be asking the question, what is this really, how is this really relevant to a kingdom conference? Because we want to talk about the kingdom. Well, I agree, we must keep our eye on the goal out ahead, without a doubt. However, while we're looking ahead, we cannot lose sight of the course which we're supposed to be following. We must realize that our present choices or change in direction in our path will ultimately affect the outcome of the purpose and the goal that lies before us. Now, we're going to be dealing with two uh, seemingly unrelated things at first, and hopefully I can show you uh, in the end how they will tie together. We will be a little pressed, so we'll try to, I'll try to move rapidly. But one of those things is something that we've talked about frequently, which are the parallels between the nation of Israel and the church. And the other is going to be dealing with some of the ancient marriage cup, uh, uh, marriage tradition of the Jews. And we only really deal with one for the sake of time. And one of the ancient customs, and there's some, there's some um, debate of, of the number of cups that are used, but um, to explain one of the traditions, when a young man saw a woman that he thought was worthy to pursue or marry, or the father saw a woman that was desirable for his son, They would go, or a representative would go, to the father of the potential bride. And they would sit down, and there would be, uh, I believe, some say two, I believe it was three. Three cups would be laid out. Now, the first cup would be drank uh, by those in attendance, and it would sanctify the purpose of that meeting. In other words, they were no longer talking about the weather, the cattle outside, and how all the aunts, uncles, and children were doing. At that point, that meeting was focused for one specific purpose, discussion of a possible union between son and daughter. Now, that cup is out of the way. We move to the second cup. The second cup was for the the father or his representative of his son and the father of the bridegroom to discuss the price of the bride. It was a business agreement. By the way, something would also be presented called a ketubah, and it's not a musical instrument. It's a wedding contract. Now, that contract would stipulate what the bride was expected to do to show herself faithful and worthy in this business agreement. The contract would also stipulate what it is the bridegroom would do and provide for the bride. One of the later traditions also would indicate if they were ever divorced or this contract was ever broken, this exorbitant amount of money would be paid. Now, 
Once the bridal price was decided, and what would happen is the father would extol the benefits and the, and the great characteristics of his daughter, what loss they would, uh, they would experience in her absence if she was to be married, how well she cooked, how well she tended the flock, how well she sowed, all of these other things would express the loss they would experience in her absence. By the way, uh, parents, grandparents, and young people, how much of an asset are you at home? Are you an asset or a liability? If we had to appraise your worth, where would that be? Now, once this, this price was decided, the second cup would be drank of. And at some, in some instances, there would be a token left as, a, um, as kind of a good faith down payment on what was to come. And you get the gist of where that's going in the scripture. You say, well, where do we find these cups Relative to Christ and us. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29, we find the Passover being partaken of by the Lord and the twelve with him. Now, it comes down to a point in verse 26 where it says, They were eating, and Jesus took bread and blessed it, and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them saying, drink you of it for this is my blood. Notice of the new covenant. You could almost translate that out as ketubah or a wedding contract. There is the declaration of what this cup is for, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. But I say unto you, now here we have an allusion uh, or, or it's being alluded to in Matthew 26 of the third cup. I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until the day that I drink it with you anew in my Father's kingdom. When he's in his Father's kingdom, what's already transpired? The marriage supper of the Lamb, right? Now, we see the second cup in Matthew chapter 26, same chapter, down a few verses into verse 38 and 39. This is when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, well, there, there was no cup. Well, yeah, there is. It's not a physical cup that we see. He tells his disciples, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, in verse 38, even unto death. Tarry ye here and with me. And he went a little further, and he fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this what? Cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. That was where the price was agreed on. And you say, well, well, he was just praying that he wouldn't have to hang on the cross and, and be there naked and shamed and, and beaten. That wasn't it. How many times have up in, in, in earlier ministries he said, for this very purpose, if I come into the world. You know why I believe that he prayed this prayer and was in such agony? He has experienced something that no other human as of yet, no other person has experienced all of the sins of the world were placed upon him. And he suffered separation from the Father, which had never been known prior. And that was the price with everything else that had to be paid to secure his bride. Now, how many of you have ever partaken of Holy Communion? That few of you. Where's Alan? <laughs> Do you know every time you drink that cup, that second cup, 
You bind yourself to this contract. Did you realize that? We have no problem recounting to the Lord everything that he's supposed to do for us. Are we walking in such a way that we're doing that which he requires of us and that we're agreeing to every time we drink of that cup? We already have the token of that initial investment, which is the Holy Spirit, assuring us of that which is to come. By the way, if that contract is broken, or if this woman is not found to be faithful, she's not found to be worthy, that contract can be broken. Now, we look at that in the sense of how many believers will disqualify themselves or not be found worthy in that day. And how many of them will not be part of the bride, nor be able to participate in the wedding festivities. And you say, well, that's, that's kind of harsh. Well, the Apostle Paul alluded to it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 31. You needn't turn there. You, can, you should be familiar with that portion of Scripture. For those of you that have taken of communion, you should hear it about every time you take of communion. Where Paul is admonishing the church of Corinth to judge themselves... And not partake of communion unworthily, for there were many that were there that have been weak, sick, and even died because they drank damnation to themselves, not discerning the Lord's blood in his body, and drank unworthily. I would equate this type as being about as significant as the type where Moses struck the rock twice instead of once. There is great value placed on this supper. There are only two signs that are given to the church. Baptism and communion. And every time we partake of communion, we do so remembering his death until when? Until he comes. Now that we've looked at this situation as far as the bride and the course or the path that's laid out for her, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 14. Okay, in Proverbs chapter 14, this is another. These are, should all be familiar portions of Scripture to you. In Proverbs chapter 14, 12, There is a way which seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And I think Brother Carl mentioned this earlier in the fact that you can have individuals that are sincere, but sincerity does not equal accuracy. You can be sincerely wrong. And there are a lot of good, good Christians, and I do not doubt their salvation. There are a lot of good Christians that are going the wrong way. And they're sincere in the way that they're going. For example, Brother Al mentioned uh, replacement theology. Uh, there's a lot of good Presbyterians out there that believe in replacement theology. Now, some of you are thinking I use that term good loosely, but anyway, they could say the same thing about the Baptists. Think about it. There's a lot of individuals out there that may have good intention and they may do a lot of things well in their walk with the Lord. But that path may not be leading to life. Of course, it just simply says there's a way that seems right unto man and the end thereof are the ways of death. This goes on. Turn over just a few more pages to Proverbs 16, 17. 
The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He that keepeth, and the word that's used here for keepeth literally means to guard. Isn't it interesting that we have scripture after scripture to tell us to guard the path that our feet are walking? He that guardeth or keepeth his way preserveth his soul. Now, in Proverbs 19.3, this, this is an apropos portion of Scripture. Uh, well, all Scripture is apropos for us today, but this is a biting um, uh, proverb that is truly relevant um, to some that we may have an opportunity to speak with. In Proverbs 19.3, it simply reads, The foolishness of a man perverteth his way, and his heart fretteth against the Lord. That word for fretting means literally to boil up, to be wrathful against. So the foolishness of a man perverts his way, and his heart boils up in anger against the Lord. How can we apply that? What, what's the application of this? Well, the thought that comes across my mind is a foolish person, saved or unsaved, plots his own life's course, and when he reaps the rotten fruit of his labor... He blames God for his state rather than himself. Now, these portions in Proverbs should take our mind over into Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. And we find the way. And again, this is another familiar portion of Scripture. So we're going to try to, to move through this fairly quickly. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Jesus is again talking to disciples. And he tells these individual disciples, or these, these disciples, Enter you in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. Many there be that go in thereat. And verse 14 tells you why there are going to be many going in that direction. Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time here on these two words. Straight literally means narrow or constricted. So narrow and constricted is the gate. And, and we oftentimes read over this, and we don't really give any thought to it because we're so familiar with it. By the way, familiarity breeds contempt. You know, one of the things that I learned in studying languages was you look at every word, and every word is there for a reason. The Holy Spirit is a divine architect in the sense that everything is there is there for a reason. And it should take, we should take time to pause and examine and not casually or lightly read over now, that being said, what is a gate? If you've ever dealt with livestock, you're familiar with gates. And sometimes they can be your friends, sometimes not so much. That gate is a portal. It's like the front door of your house. You don't get into your house unless you go through the door, right? Unless you want to climb through a window, and that's a portal as well. You say, well, what difference does that make with the gate? Well, fine, hold your place there in Matthew 7 and turn over in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 7. It might begin to come a little more clear to you. Just how narrow and constricted that gate actually is. John, chapter 10, verse 7. Then Jesus saying to them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If any man enter in, he shall be saved 
and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, and destroy. I am come that they may have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Now, how many times have we heard that there's more than one way to heaven? Well, that's not even theologically correct if you understand the kingdom. How many ways are there unto the Father? None but by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the door. There is no other way. Now, if you'll uh, just hold your place there in John for a second, turn over back in Matthew chapter 7, and we get back to the way. Narrow is the way which leadeth into life. You can't get to the way until you go through the door. And that way is narrow. Now, if you look this up in a, in a lexicon, and that's just an expensive word for a dictionary, that helps you feel better when you pay 60 or 80 bucks for it, you know. It's <laughs> got a new word. If you look that word up in a lexicon, I believe it would be appropriate to use the metaphorical translation of the word narrow. And you think, metaphorical? Well, hold on a minute. The word narrow metaphorically means to trouble, to afflict, or distress. Once we enter in through the gate, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, the path that we will follow will have distresses, afflictions, and troubles. And anybody that tells you otherwise is going down a wrong path. Because remember, wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be that will enter thereat. Well, what is the way? You told us what the door was. Well, what is the way? And some of you may have figured out where I'm going with this. I hope so. Go back into John and turn over a few places to the right, and you'll be in John chapter 14. Again, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And whether I go, you know, and the way, you know. Now, how many of us are going to be like Thomas? Thomas said unto him, Lord, we know not whether thou goest, and how can we know the way? What does Jesus say in verse 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by whom? Does that add a little bit of clarity to the gate and to the way? Now we say, well, you told us that this path was going to be full of affliction, distresses, and troubles. Well, I didn't tell you. The Lord told you. I just get to be the one to read it to you. Well, take comfort. The Apostle Paul tells us, and you needn't turn there, but I would like you to be turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 while I read this to you. We have comfort from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 13 through 15, where he tells us, as we assemble together, all of us have varying stories to tell about our afflictions, our troubles, our distresses. But the Apostle Paul gives the church of Corinth some comfort in saying, There hath no temptation, adversity, or putting to the proof that has taken you, but such as common to man, 
But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted or tested above that you are able. But with the temptation will also make a way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as unto wise men. Judge ye what I say. You know, the Lord didn't say that he wouldn't put a burden on us that, um, that we wanted to carry. Or that we didn't think was heavy. He said he would put those burdens or those trials on us and make a way of escape and that he would be faithful, that we would be able to bear it. Our focus needs to be on him, not on our affliction, not on our trial. And that's easy to preach. It's hard to do. Now, I hope you're in Corinthians chapter 1. And we start, uh, I told you earlier, Jesus is our living example that we're to mold ourselves after. Remember the, the apostle told us that we are to be, uh, we are to grow into the fullness of the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. That being said, humans are very object lesson oriented. And so we need something to kind of see in a sense, kind of like the Hebrew children when they wanted a king. Now, the father knowing our desire or our need for a, a, a visible object lesson provided it in the person of the Son. Now, this is a familiar portion of Scripture, again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, but we're going to take some time to examine this a little more closely. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, and Arlen has dealt with this portion of Scripture very well when he's dealing with the verbs, um, and he translates it, for the preaching of the cross to them that are perishing, that's a present participle. Uh, present participles primarily focus on a continuous action. For those that are perishing, uh, this word of the cross is foolishness. But unto us which are being saved, that's a present uh, passive participle. Literally, it's are being saved. It is the power of God. Now, something that we often haven't taken the time to look at is the word that's used here for preaching. Because we just assume that it's the standard word that's used for, or the standard words that are be used for preaching, which would be keruso or euangelizo. It's not. The term that's used here for preaching is logos. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Say, the first chapter in the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the logos. So, ideally this would simply read, the word of the cross is silliness or foolishness to those who are perishing. By the way, those that are perishing can encompass both the redeemed and the unredeemed. Because those that are redeemed and not walking in obedience take on the attributes, the attitudes, and the philosophies and doctrines of this present age. And in so doing, they've corrupted their minds. You can go back and look at this, not only in Corinthians, but you can see it in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Uh, ultimately, we're three times it says the Lord gave them up or gave them over. By the way, that usage of the number three is a revelation of divine judgment upon redeemed children that are now de being dealt with as bastards as opposed to sons. That's free. We'll move on. Now, second, uh, we indicated that that was, uh, that was the word. And, of course, the word also is a representation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what should we draw out of this translation? Well, first off, that the typical view and presentation of the cross of Christ is wrong. Not only does the cross of Christ present to us a doctrine of salvation, 
where we may look and live, as it were, but it also presents to us discipleship and obedience to the word and will of God the Father. The idea of the cross denotes discipleship and obedience and is shown by the Son and recorded for us in the scriptures in Matthew 10, 38 and 39, Matthew 16, 24 through 27, Luke 14, 26 through 35, Philippians 2, 5 through 16, Philippians 3, 10 through 21. Now, we move on into verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? And where is the disputer of this world? Hath God not made foolish? The word that's used here for foolish is morino. We've talked about that before at some length. Uh, this is the same word that's used for the five foolish virgins. It's where we derive our English cognate, moron. God, or hath not God made moronic, foolish, stupid, the wisdom of this age? And when the Lord says that, isn't it kind of counterproductive for us to race to embrace something that the Lord has declared stupid? Now, in verse 21, that's kind of an unhappy translation. Let's look at it this way. For seeing that in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save those or them that, and this is a present active participle, that are believing. Not just a one and done, but a continual believing. Jesus didn't come just to save our spirit. He came to save our body and our soul. And our walking with him as our example requires continuing, um, continuing belief. For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after, seek after wisdom. We preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. Now look at how this outline reverses itself in the end. It's foolishness and a stumbling block to the Greeks. Or, or, it's a stumbling block because of the sign to the Jews. It's foolishness because it lacks wisdom for the Greek. But look in verse 34. Unto them which are, and that word called is a little, is a, is a, is a little misleading. Literally, you could translate it to those who are invited. Invited to what? The marriage supper of the Lamb. To those that are invited, both to Jews and to Greeks... Christ is the power of God. The, uh, I'd have to go back and look it up, but I'm assuming that the word used there for power would be dunamis. It's that power by which miracles were performed. The Greek or the Jews wanted a sign. That sign takes place in Christ, just like unto the prophet Jonas. The Greeks want to seek after wisdom. They're looking for worldly wisdom. But for those Gentiles that forsake the, the worldly wisdom... Understanding the word of the cross, it is the wisdom of God in the person of Christ. Now we say, okay, well, the word of the cross is the wisdom and the power of God. He gives us an example. You tell us about the way. What do we do with that? What path is that? Well, turn over in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5.
Here Paul elaborates more on that path, on that living example for us in Philippians chapter 2. This is a commandment, by the way. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, what mind was in Christ Jesus? This is important. We don't need to just look over this and say, well, this indicates the, the equality within the Trinity, that the Son was equal to the Lord. We know that. But this, this particular verse is in here for a reason. Okay? In verse 6, Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Look in verse 7. But keep in mind that God the Son is equal with God the Father. But he made himself of no reputation to the Godhead. He took upon himself the form of a servant to the Father to accomplish the Father's will. The Father's will was that he would be made in the fashion of man. That the God, the Son, would take on the form of that which he created. And he was made in the likeness of man. Not only was he made in the likeness of his own creation, but when he was found in the fashion of a man, he humbled himself even to that creation. When the Lord came into time for us, and he was born in the flesh... He did not come as the child of a king. He did not come as a great individual. He humbled himself, even in that, to his own creation. And according to the will of the Father, he also became obedient unto death. His death was not glorious. His death was not a great thing that the world celebrated in the sense of, what a great man is he. His death was one of a curse, it was one of humility and disgrace as far as the world was concerned. But he did so because it was the will of the Father. And he submitted his will to the will of the Father. So you know in this passage of Scripture, there are five things that we are told that our example did. Five is the number of grace. And we find the gracious obedience and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of this obedience, only two things are said that the Father did here with regard to His Son. And they are unique and they are distinct from one another. The first, whereof God hath also highly exalted Him for this obedience. Is that not what we would like? The second, it says, is given Him a name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, of things in earth, and things under the earth. That every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of whom? God the Father. Because His Son accomplished that for which He was sent. And He is glory in the fact that His Son has overcome just as He will be glorified when and if we overcome and are crowned and given a name only that He and we know. <coughs> Excuse me. 
Now we move on into verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always... And I want you to notice something here. This is often used with regard to common salvation. If you're wondering what I'm talking about, a common salvation, are you all believers? Have you all believed, have had faith that Jesus Christ is the Lord? Well, that's common to all of us. The uncommon, uncommon salvation is the saving of our souls. Look around at the judgment. How many of us will have saved our souls? The uncommon salvation. If you'll notice, this isn't used. It doesn't say that they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. The word that's used here in verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, they're already saved. As you have obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out, that is a command, your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. While you're thinking of that passage, remember back to the pilgrimage journey of the Hebrew children. For what purpose do you need to do these things and do them without murmurings and disputings? That you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shines as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Now there is your example. There is your path. We have no excuse to say that we didn't know. Now when we talk about this path and when we look at the uh, when we look at the contract that we agree to every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, when we look at the example that's laid down before us, when we go over into Hebrews 11 and we look at the examples of the great cloud of witnesses that have accomplished this very task, we need to realize that while we guard our path, there will be hindrances that help create those troubles, afflictions, and distresses. You needn't turn there, but I would like, uh, I'm going to be uh, referencing a couple of verses. I would like for you to go ahead and turn over in your Bibles to Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2. If you get asked by anyone later who you had talking to you at 1030, you can let them know it was a sipping saint. If I go over the hour, you'll probably wonder what's in this bottle. I brought it from home. As we begin looking at these, at these potential hindrances, a good place for us to start is Matthew chapter 23 and Luke chapter 11. This should be of interesting note to you because in Matthew chapter 23, there are seven woes pronounced upon the Pharisees and the, and the, and the Sadducees. Seven. What does the number seven in Scripture identify or is identified with? A spiritual completion, something done in absolute perfection, correct? That is a perfect perfectly complete spiritual judgment upon the nation of Israel. It's comparable to the three sets of seven judgments in the book of the Revelation. God pronounced a sentence upon the religious leaders for their activity 
in not only entering the kingdom themselves, but hindering those who are trying to enter in. And he lays out their sins for you. What did these Pharisees and Sadducees do? They sat in Moses' seat, according to Matthew 23 and Luke 11. Moses' seat was a seat, a seat of authority. And they added to the burdens of the people that were under their authority. I think it was Brother Swift that mentioned the other day um, um, the, the fact that Jesus taught with authority. Well, what does that mean? If you've ever gone back and studied any rabbinical writings, one of the ones that I was looking at, I want to say it was the Babylonian Talmud, and I want to say it was about 24 volumes. And if you ever have trouble sleeping at night, I would recommend you pick up one because you'll be asleep before long. Basically, that is a running commentary of what multiple rabbis think about a specific subject. Okay? So it's just a running commentary. And when these rabbis would get up in the sanctuary, often what they would do is they would say, well, Rabbi Hakabah says this about this subject. Rabbi Gamaliel says this. Rabbi so-and-so says this. And they would be there for however long, and it never really got to the scripture. By the way, do we have that in church today? Well, Matthew Henry says, Oliver B. Green says, what does the word of God say? That is what we are gathered here for. And for every true believer... This should be the deciding factor on all subjects. And if it's not, quite honestly, then we have no fellowship. Now, you say, well, what about the, well, well, you mentioned parallels. Well, we'll get to parallels in a second. You say, well, how how did they hinder these people? Well, I told you about the rabbinical writings. It was always what somebody else taught that was important in those lessons. Now, I'm guilty. I reference a lot. But I try to keep it in context and give you more meat than opinion. Now, that being said, Luke chapter 11, verse 22, when it talks about the lawyers, it's not talking about the ones in Washington, though it probably would apply. These lawyers were doctors of law. These were, the, these were the Pharisees or the scribes that had studied and memorized the law. I believe Paul being probably one of them. Remember, you had the Pharisees primarily that made up not only the Sanhedrin, but the Sanhedrin, those that would judge issues of life and death according to the law. Uh, if you remember, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, was, uh, was witness because he was a participant in the Sanhedrin, more than likely, that was guilty of the stoning of Stephen. Now, how did these lawyers, how did they wind up in this judgment? How did they hinder? Woe unto you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in, you hindered. By the way, that's what's meant when it says the kingdom of God suffereth violence. For those who get up behind the lectern in the pulpit, for those who are in the Sunday school classes, for those that decide to be mentors and disciple, you'd best make sure you do not parallel the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. Because the same judgment that befell them in Matthew and Luke will be waiting on you. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to speed through... um, 
the rest of this because I want to get to a point where we look at the difference between true repentance versus worldly sorrow. In 2 Peter, Peter tells you of other hindrances. These other hindrances are individuals that creep in and they seek to allure, to distract, uh, to draw away those that were clean from this present world, and they seek to entangle them again in the snares of our enemy. Basically, the scripture says for those individuals that fall off of that path, that course, those that are drawn away, their state will be worse than it was at the beginning. Keep that in mind. The Lord has no pleasure when we, uh, when we step out of that path. He is gloried when we overcome. He is shamed when we fail. And you say, well, I just can't live like that. I, I can't do that. There's no way that I can. Well, we all come off of that path every now and then. I know there are those that say they don't sin, but when they get right with the Lord and admit they're a liar too, then they can get that set straight. We typically go to 1 John, but I want to take you to a passage that deals with Israel. And um, actually, just be turning in your Bible to, to Psalm 51. I'll read this passage to you because we're almost out of time. In Isaiah 55, verse 6, and this is a wonderful, comforting portion of Scripture. Seek ye the Lord. Well, seek him. Seek him. Well, he's always there. No, seek the Lord while he may be found. There's coming a day that you're going to call. Proverbs tells us this. There's coming a day you'll call and he won't answer. We haven't experienced that yet. And I hope by the grace of God that we don't. But it can happen. Call you upon him while he is near. What does that mean? Keep going down the wrong path. He hasn't moved. You are. Keep going and he won't be, he won't be near. He'll be far. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord, and he, the Lord, will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven... And returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud. Now, no, I want you to, to hear this. And remember the parables that were talked about earlier. That it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Outside of fellowship, you can't disciple, you can't lead, you can't mentor, because you will not have the seed. And without the seed, you cannot sow. And there will not be bread for those that sit under you to hear and to grow thereby. So return to the Lord. You say that, well, what is the, what is the difference? What do you mean by godly repentance? I go and I say, Lord, forgive me for all of my sins. Wipe every transgression away before I go to bed or throughout the day. Is that real repentance? Not really. How many of these jokers do you see get up on TV when they're pulled over by the police? And, well, I'm so sorry I did such and such. I embarrassed myself. I That's worldly sorrow. They're not sorrow, sorrowful that they did it. They're sorrowful that they got caught. And many Christians in that day 
before the Lord has an opportunity to deal with their works, as Brother Wilson used to say, he'll probably have to deal with their sins. They were sorrowful that they got caught, but not that they committed the sin. A good place to go back and look, and we'll wrap up uh, in, in these portions of Scripture, is the 51st Psalm. And we, we remember the story of David with Bathsheba. I'm sure we remember that quite well. You know, David tried to hide that sin. And the Lord sent a prophet, the prophet Nathan. And can you imagine being the king and sitting on the throne in front of all the people in your court? And Nathan presents this story to David. And David not catching what was being said. David passed sentence upon this unjust act. And do you remember what Nathan said? David, thou art the man. Remember what the Lord says. By your very words, you'll be judged. What was David's attitude? We know the passage of scripture where it says David was a man after God's own heart. Let's see how David handled that reproof from the man of God. David cries out, and this gives us a correct view of sin and how we ought to confess it. Have mercy on me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According to the multitudes of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me of my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. I want you to think about that. Because not only did David lose a good friend in Uriah, not only did he suffer shame in his kingdom, not only did his own son do unto him ten times that which he did to Uriah with his concubines on the rooftop under the, sin, under the sun for all Israel to see, but David lost a son. His sin was ever before him. Those consequences Stayed before him. By the way, when God forgives us of a sin, the transgression itself may be forgiven, but the fruits of that transgression remain. David goes on to say, Against thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mayest be justified when thou speakest and clear when thou judgest. We don't need to be looking for God to give us a pardon like we do in our court systems today. You get 30 years, you serve three weeks, and you're out for good behavior. God does not work that way. There are no plea bargains at the judgment seat. We need to acknowledge in true sincerity the magnitude of sin that we have done in sowing chaos into that which God is trying to bring order to. Now he goes on to say, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done evil in thy sight, that thou mayest be justified when thou speakest and clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and sin did, and in sin uh, did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden parts shalt thou make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. 
Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Every son that I receive, I chasten. Hide thou, hide thou face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy way and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. Thou God of my salvation and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Guard the path that you walk. Remember the example that is set before us. And when we falter and fail, and we will, the Lord remembers that we are dust. Do not be haughty in our confession. Do not minimize the consequence or the effect of our sin. How long, is the, as the, how long has the sin of Abraham tormented the nation of Israel? How long will the seeds that we sow in the flesh torment us and those around us? Thank you for your patience with me again, Alan Tracy. Thank you for the invitation. And God bless you.